Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. I figured it'd be no better way than to end with a last whiteboard before we go to our new space. Well, if you're new or you've been here a while and you forgot, my name's Trey, and I get to be the pastor here, and um, I am, I, I, I think I say this every week, and I feel like maybe you probably have to, but I, I'm really excited about the passage I'm going to talk about today, and, and I say that because there's really only two passages in the entire Bible where I think you get to see this just like, like when, you, when you're peeling back an onion, you get to see like the most inner core of who Jesus is, and it's just so powerful. Uh, and so to, to be honest, like I was kind of preparing this week for this and like these verses, you know, when you read them, they don't necessarily jump off the page, but when you really understand what's going on here, you kind of just have to sit back and you just have to process because it just blows your mind a little bit. And, uh, and so I, I, before we get into that today, um, I wanted to use an illustration. Uh, raise your hand if you're a big fan of building sandcastles. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Like maybe you're the kid who like plays with Legos and you're like, yeah, like that was like my version when I go to the beach. I remember we go to Myrtle Beach or Ocean City, Maryland, and, uh, and there's two, and we would uh, go to the ocean, and I like, love playing the waves and all that. I have two older sisters. All they want to do was tan, of course, and uh, my dad hated the sand. My mom just was not a huge fan of the ocean either, and so I'm just playing out the waves by myself, and I would oftentimes, like as I can remember, like a middle school boy building sandcastles, you know? So you're never too old, um, but I would build these sandcastles, and I remember distinctively um, in the ocean, what's unique about it, and you, if you've been to the ocean, hopefully you have or you know about it, is that, you know, a lot of times, let's say you get a real nice, real nice, like, uh, beachfront house here. This is a building. I'm showing you my architecture skills here, okay? So here's, like, your, your window, okay, and you get to see the ocean. This is the ocean right here, okay? But a lot of places that you go is, like, they have these dunes. I don't know if you've seen that, like, these big dunes here. And that's where the turtles live, right? And you can't hurt them because... And then you have, like, this little sidewalk that you, you get your own private entrance to where everyone else is. You know what I mean? Like, they brag about, this is your own little... And then, like, everyone's here. Well, I would build sandcastles. You know, a lot of people that are, like, sunbathing, they sit, like, back here, you know, because the, the water, the tide will, you know, rise and stuff depending on the time of day. Well, one of the things that makes a good sandcastle, if you're into this, is a moat. Like, you've got to have a moat. Otherwise, like, what kind of protection you got? Are you kidding me? Like, come on, it's a joke. So you've got to have a moat. And when you're building your sandcastle, sorry, this is just not to scale here, but when you're building your sandcastle, okay, right there, that's not bad. There's me, okay? When you're building your sandcastle, you've got to have water in it. Now, you can do one of two ways. You can get a bucket, and you can, like, just go back and forth and fill it up, but then you know what happens. All the water goes through the sand and is gone, and your moat's lame. Or you can create it at such a distance where, like, the, the water and the tide keeps, like, filling it up. That's when you know you're really good because it just automatically keeps filling, and you're like, this is awesome. The downside of that is if you don't put it in the right location, and you're like, I'm going to be really ambitious, and you put it out here, in, like, five minutes, your entire sandcastle is gone, right? I don't know if you, anyone is. Maybe I'm just really weird. I don't know. But if you've seen this before, you know what I'm talking about. And I, I was thinking about this in illustration as I was preparing um, this week, and I was thinking about how we, we talk a lot about in the book of Matthew, which is what we've been going through for several weeks, 
this idea of a kingdom. And we talk about how there's this, this kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing on earth. That It's like his manifesto. While he's here and he does ministry for three years, he dies and he ascends into heaven and, and he leaves us this like kingdom. And the kingdom is just the beauty and the reign and the power of God here on earth, right? So the things that you get to be a part of and do as a follower of Jesus is, is ushering in what God is doing. And he's including us in collaborating in that. And so when we talk about kingdoms, we oftentimes talk about how God's kingdom and your kingdom, they, they, they really have a hard time coexisting. Because your kingdom is rooted in yourself and your own vanity and your idols and the things you want to do. And so in order to follow God's kingdom, you can't merge them together. You have to abandon yours and follow his, which is the whole idea of, um, you know, um, basically following, taking up your cross, right? It's abandoning your kingdom and following his. And so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, like, all these different people who maybe try to build sandcastles, and they build them in all sorts of different, like, locations all along the beach here. And I was thinking about this idea of, like, what if the water was just the world, right? It's like the things of the world, the distractions, the money, the vanity, the pride, the fame, the, maybe the, broken, the brokenness, maybe the generational sin in your life, like the traumas you've experienced. And, and it's, no matter what, it's, it's coming back and forth. There's always an ebb and a flow. And I think that's honestly really accurate in life. Some weeks, some days are just great. And other weeks and other days are just terrible. Life is really hard. Things are coming up. Like, there's things in Sarah and I's life where she's had some family things come up where we would never even thought they would happen, and all of a sudden we get a call, and it's like, now we got to handle this thing, right? And, and so we have these things in our life. It's just this constant ebb and flow. And what I realized was most unique about this situation was my sandcastle and what I had focused on, my kingdom, if you will, I wanted to have water in it, but oftentimes I would look at other people and people who build it out here, you know, I, I'd judge them and be like, oh, what idiots. Like, their castle's not going to last more than five minutes. And so the longer I do this, the better I realize, man, I need to really separate myself from this tension, right? Like I need to, I need to remove myself from the things of the world that I know are going to ruin like my foundation. I know they're going to ruin everything that, I've, that I have. And the hard part is, though, is that the farther you move away from the water, the less, like in my instance, you have water for a moat, the less you feel like you can complete your kingdom. And so there's this push and pull. And what I want to get at today in this illustration idea is that I think when we, are, when we are building our own lives and when, we, when people choose to follow Jesus, the hardest part about that in relation to other people is having compassion for people who are not in the same trajectory of life as you. And what I mean by that is like you may have experienced like great freedom. Paul talks about how in his group like people are finding freedom in sin. People are like building really tight community and you might be sitting there and being like, what the heck, like I don't have that. And you're almost frustrated. Or even maybe Paul might sit down with you and you talk about the things you're struggling with and Paul is just like, I don't get it. Why don't they just like fix their life? Like, why don't they just get rid of this thing that's hurting them or whatever, right? And, and we, I think is, if you're a Christian, the hardest thing about this idea is that oftentimes we have no compassion for people who we just see building these castles in the ocean. And we're like, how dumb are they? Like, that's not even going to last 30 seconds. And so as we get into the passage today, what it's all about is compassion. It's all about our perspective and our ability to think about people, the things they're caught in, the things they're ensnared in, the things they've maybe grown up with, that they inherited, and how our reaction to that is going to be honoring of Jesus. And so if you turn with me, this is Matthew 9, 35. If you look in your Bible, um, if you have like a physical Bible, your, your phone Bible probably wouldn't reveal it as much, but uh, we're, we're starting another chapter after this, and we're actually starting a new section of Matthew. So if you look on the screen behind me, there's seven parts of Matthew. We're in the third part, and, uh, and what we're doing here, um, sorry, you can go back. That's probably, we just finished all of these, but um, if you go back to, yeah, this part. So we're in the third part, the kingdom as a reality, and 
basically what's happening is Jesus is, is showing people what the kingdom looks like tangibly. So it'd be like if I said, like, man, I make the best guacamole ever, and you're like, okay, cool, but like, I'm not going to believe that till I try it. And I'm like, here you go, and you try it, and it changes your life. That's what Jesus is essentially doing. He's saying, hey, I'm bringing this kingdom of God, I'm, I'm ushering it in, and it will change your life. If you repent and you, and, you, and you believe that the kingdom of God is yours, and he gives you all these kind of ideas of what it looks like. And he gives this long sermon on the mount, and then he starts doing it. He starts casting out demons. He starts healing people, all this crazy stuff. Chapter 10 now, uh, which we'll get into later, is him actually allowing other people to do this. And so this is like this beautiful little bookend. It's, it's kind of pulling back what we've been talking about for several weeks, and it's looking forward ahead to what Jesus' idea of how this looks for other people to do. And so verse 35, it says, Then Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of sickness. Now, if you've, if you've been following along with us, or maybe you've read Matthew recently, you actually might feel like this is plagiarism from earlier in Matthew. Like, we've, this sounds familiar, Trey. Have we read this? If you go back to Matthew 4, which you can if you want, verse 23 I'm going to read it. It says, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. It is almost exactly the same. And so what Matthew's doing here is he's kind of, like I said, he's bookending these sections, and he's saying, hey, the, the points that I'm trying to make, I've, I've shown you the kingdom is a reality. Jesus has done it. This is what it looks like. People find freedom from spiritual demons, from physical ailments, from generational sin, from ostracization, from all these type of things. And he just, he just removes it in, with a heart of grace. And now we have this bookend where it's going to go from Jesus to his followers. And it's really, really cool. And so he's kind of like re, revisiting this to remind us, okay, we're going on in the next section. This is the heart of Jesus. Let's move on here. And so in verse uh, 36, right after this, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Now, this is unique. He has crowds following him, and there's several times where there's crowds following Jesus. This is no surprise, but he's done a lot of immaculate things, right? Like, just ridiculously crazy awesome, and people are starting to get wind of it, and they're running to him, some, some for good reasons, some for bad reasons, right? Just selfish, desperate, whatever it may be, but he looks upon all these people, and he has compassion on them. Now, like I was talking about in the sandcastle analogy here, you know, and you can, you can create whatever analogy you want in your own life, right? What are the things that you look on other people? What is your reaction? Is it compassion? Is it anger? Is it jealousy? Is it bitterness, right? Jesus has all these people, we just saw earlier, so desperate to even just touch his cloak, right, to receive healing, and he has compassion on them. And the word compassion, uh, you know, we don't necessarily understand the full weight of it. In fact, in the English, you really can't even translate it correctly, but the actual the actual word, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write it out because it's, it's something else, is pronounced splonknizoma, which is, uh, which is this Greek word, and it is incredibly powerful. In fact, like I said, there, if you read different translations, they have a hard time fully showing you the weight of this word. That's quite a word, isn't it? You should get a t-shirt for that. But what it actually means is it, it doesn't just mean compassion or pity or sympathy, the closest meaning would actually be a gut response. And so in this time, of this first century, uh, there was a strong belief that the correlation between your gut and your heart was kind of one. So like if you felt like, you know, sick, that was like, oh, that's your gut. We would say, oh, you're nauseous, your stomach ache, whatever. To them, it was almost like it was related to your heart. It was like you feel conviction, like you feel a weight about something. 
And so when we talk about gut response, it's not like Jesus, you know, he had too much fried food before this and he's not feeling well. It's that like in his very heart, in his very core, his heart is just aching for these people. His heart is aching for these people. And, and, it, and so it's, it, what's also crazy about it, if you read it, this is not really a noun but a verb, which is really unique because you're like, how do you verb compassion? Like, like is that like a specific thing? Like, I, I compassioned that person. Like, that doesn't sound right, right? But what they're implying here and what we see in the instances of Jesus' compassion is it's always, it's always done in an action. So it's a feeling. Like, we think of compassion, I felt compassion. It's a feeling. But in Jesus' instance, the feeling is always carried with an action. So you can feel compassion about that homeless person that you walked by, but unless you actually did something about it, you actually didn't really, you weren't really compassionate in this instance of what we see Jesus doing. So as Matthew is giving us his 360 view of Jesus, what he's showing us is one of his deepest heart core desires is not only to feel compassion, but to act upon it. And praise God that he does that, right? That he doesn't just say cool things or be nice to people, but that he lives his life in a practical response to meet the need. And I think the question that we have to ask, and it kind of gets to this, is why does he have this feeling and action of these people? Because you think about these type of people that are desperate, that, that, are, that are seeking him, in, in, verse, in the later part of verse 36, it says, it says because, he felt this because they were bewildered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The, uh, a couple of different translations say distressed and dejected or harassed and helpless, confused and helpless. Basically, these people are running around building sandcastles in the ocean and they don't even really realize how dumb it is. Like, and you're sitting there and you're just like, oh my gosh, you idiots, what are you guys doing? Clearly, that's a terrible idea. Now, I don't know if you felt that where maybe you found freedom in Jesus and you've had friends that you've maybe been lifelong friends with or family members. And now that you've seen clarity, now that you've found hope, now that you've experienced freedom, you look at them and your reaction is not compassion, but it's anger and it's frustration because you're like, why aren't you getting your life together? And, you know, I, I mean, maybe that's, that's something that you've been dealing with for a while. Maybe now you have bitterness towards that person or you can't even love them well. And you're like, you read this and you're just like, this wrecks me because... Jesus has these people who want nothing to do with him. They just want his stuff. And his heart still goes out and it still seeks compassion for these people. And so I think about when we define like harassed, helpless, discouraged, all these type of words. At the end of the day, it doesn't mean that these people were just all dumb or that they all didn't get it. It means that these people, by a worldly sense, were pursuing the wrong things. And so that means that the people in your life that could be these people, if you're trying to take that practical illustration, might not just be the poor or the mentally ill. It might be the rich who are pursuing the wrong things and are confused on the meaning of life. It could be the people who are incredibly prideful around you that you can't stand because they're so insecure that they don't have any, any, any rooted security. It could be the people who are really, really smart and who really like intellectually are just brilliant but are hiding behind that because they don't want, they don't want to even acknowledge the fact that there's a spiritual realm in the world that we live in. Those people are also confused and helpless. And, and so when we start to see that, it starts to make the heart of Jesus, I think it almost seems even harder for me, but I, it makes me want to worship him more because I'm like, this guy this, who is God came on earth and dealt with us, the worst of people, who had no intentions of really loving him or, or, or like reciprocating any of what he offered. 
And, and, and even in that, in knowing that, his deepest heart inclination is to continue to not only feel love for them, but to do love for them. And so it's one thing for you to feel bad for your, your brother or your friend who just keeps you know, building their sandcastle in the ocean, and you, and you just have to keep dealing with them when they call you, and they're crying, and they're frustrated, and they're like, my life is just like hopeless, and, I, and, and you just like are mad because you're like, you know the answer, you know? And they won't listen, or they're or being whatever. And, and Jesus just doesn't even, doesn't ever have a shred of bitterness toward any of those people. And what he does is, which is what we read several chapters ago, is he tells all these people, at the beginning of his longest teaching we read, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. That, the, 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 the foundation of Jesus' kingdom is for these people. And he's not doing it just to be nice and just to say it, but his deepest heart inclination is for these people, regardless of how they'll accept it. And, and, uh, and they use this illustration in this verse about sheep without a shepherd. Now, like I said, we, we talk about this a lot. This is first century. You know, We don't know a lot of shepherds. Um, I really wish we had someone that was a shepherd that went to our church. I think it would just explain this so much better. But sheep, done a little research. I wouldn't call myself a sheepologist by any means, but that's a joke because that's not correct. But um, it's all right, tough crowd. And uh, a sh- sheep are, are completely stubborn. They are very stubborn creatures. Um, they are led by their appetite. I don't know if this sounds familiar to humans. We are led not only by our physical appetite, but also a lot of things that we crave. And they would require a lot of attention and care, like constant maintenance. Um, in fact, sometimes they would wander off, like there'd be a flock of them, and they'd wander off, and a shepherd would have to get out their good old crook, you know, a little cane thing you've seen in like the third grade Christmas thing, and, and they had to just kind of right over their neck and pull them back. That's what that's for if you're wondering. It's also to, you know, boast off a wolf if it comes at you, but, but mainly for the sheep. <laughs> These shepherds are like ninja warriors, man. It was crazy. Uh, but... What was shocking, I was reading about a first-century like first scholar who was an expert in sheep, which is what a job, right? What a dream. What a dream come true. And he, told, and he, and he says this, his name is Philip Keller, and uh, he's, he wrote a book on uh, Psalm 23, which is about a shepherd. It's, it's a really beautiful passage. He describes how sheep can get turned over on their backs and not be able to get up themselves again. Kind of like, a, you ever see like a turtle, you know? They, and this is, this is astonishing. Such sheep are called cast or cast down sheep. These sheep flail at the air with their legs, but they can't get back on their feet without the aid of the shepherd. Left in this condition, helpless and vulnerable to their enemies, they will die after a few hours or days. <laughs> People are like, oh, and that one person just couldn't, couldn't hold it in. But it, it, I just thought that was so interesting, one, from a sheep perspective, but two, that, that they like literally are helpless. Like there is, there is circumstances in their lives that will have nothing to do with how good of a sheep they are or aren't. It could just be a bad day. It could be a violent windstorm. And they blow over and they're just, they're, they're done. And this is the state of humanity we're talking about here. You can be really rich and no matter what, your circumstances can end like that. Like you can get a phone call right now that would change your life. You could get in a car accident that would change your life or someone else's life, just like that. And we think we're so invincible, but at the end of the day, we are just sheep. We're stubborn. We're driven by our appetite. We need a shepherd, 
And oftentimes when we think we don't, we run off and then we need to get a little crook to our neck to pull us back. And so Jesus here like knows what he's dealing with. God knows what he's dealing with. And if you've read the Old Testament, it is pages and pages and pages of us being dumb sheep that God continues to love. And that's why Jesus comes onto the scene. That's why, we, that's why we are so obsessed with Jesus because it is God flesh. It, it actually, when we talked about this, this is the first week we talked about Matthew. Jesus, originally Joshua, means literally Yahweh saves. God in the Old Testament was called Yahweh. And so God saves by sending Yahweh saves to save us. And, and we realize that this God who, like, if you were the Old Testament, you're like, man, that guy's really mean. And in the New Testament, he's much nicer. It's the same God. It's the God in the Old Testament who had seen such rebellion and just, and just honestly, just pure, just terribleness from us. I mean, we did the worst things we could have done, like, like just profaning in his temple and all these type of things. I don't want to get into it. a lot of good stories, though. But and, and he still loves us, and he sends his son, who is God, and, and his heart is this right here. Like, this is, this is the heart of God throughout the entire Bible. We cannot forget that. It's not just Jesus, the nice guy, God, the Father, the mean guy, and the Holy Spirit is whatever. It's, this is God, that his heart is for people who for thousands of years have been rebelling, and not only rebelling, but been malicious towards God. And what happens is Jesus invites us into this kingdom and so quickly can we become mean and angry and bitter towards the very people that we were. And Jesus' heart here is that long word, right? He feels this visceral response and act of compassion. So what does he do about it? That's the question. That's why I showed you in your Bible, we're in a really cool transition point here because for the next five weeks, we're going to finish out the year. In chapter 10 here, chapter 10 is the last part of this section that we're in. Jesus is going to give us his action plan. Remember, because compassion is not just a feeling, it's also an action. And so here it is in verse 37. He says to his disciples then, right? He describes his heart. He describes the state of humanity. And he says, here's what we're going to do about it. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, harvest most times in the Old Testament, actually, fun fact, was actually about wrath. It was actually a bad thing. It was like harvesting up all the things to burn. And Jesus here is using this in a positive illustration because the wrath that had been deserved upon the people is being taken by him. And so the harvest, he knows, is actually going to be a positive thing because his harvest now is freeing these people who deserve this wrath. And so he tells them the harvest is plentiful, farming analogy, which is great. But this harvest is bringing new people into the kingdom, the kingdom that he is enacting. But what's interesting is he says the harvest is plentiful, but he says the workers are few. Now think about this, like if you're listening to Jesus in this moment, he says this and you're like trying to connect the dots and you're like, okay, like we're supposed to maybe do what you're doing. The workers are few. There's not a lot of us. But you think about who have the workers been for the last nine chapters of Matthew? I can think of maybe two. One, Jesus. Two, maybe John the Baptist. That's it, right? I mean, up until this point, the disciples have been like falling behind him and seeing what he's doing. But until this, literally the superstar and the only person who's been making any of the plays, it's like if you're watching like the NBA, like he has scored every single point. Like there's been no other points scored. And he says the workers are few. And, and, and there's this massive harvest. And, and I think this is so healthy to understand that Jesus came on earth not just to heal people. 
Because he is so much bigger and greater than that. And in fact, if he wanted to do that, he would still be here today and he'd be working a shop somewhere and you could walk in and you could just heal your leg. But he cares far deeper than that, which is why he didn't just go around the entire world just healing people for days and years and whatever. He did it because he wanted to show the foundation of what it looks like and then he calls his kingdom, his people, to go do that. And that's why he's saying the workers are few because in this instance... There's only a few of them that are radically falling, and there's crowds of people that are like flocking to him. But the people who truly have the right belief and intentions, and we learn kind of in this process, the disciples are trying to figure this out. Those are the people who move forward in the way of Jesus, and they, they do exactly what he does. And so the next five weeks, we're talking about what that looks like. But as we, as we close this, this part, this part of the passage, He's including everyone, but then he draws us into, and I think this is the coolest thing, like how often do we get excited about like um, doing things for the Lord and then we forget to just pray. Like we think about this person we met, we had this really good conversation at a coffee shop or like someone in our family, they're just starting to ask good questions. We get really excited and we just think about all the things that we can say that are like this little formula, we put it all together and then bam, you know, they're at church on Sunday. Nice job. We often forget that like, oh, prayer is of utmost importance. And so what does Jesus say after this? He says, the harvest is plentiful. Lots of people who need to understand this kingdom is available to them. Not a lot of people that are currently doing it. Therefore, he says in verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest-ready fields. Ask the Lord, if we remember in Matthew 7, ask and you shall receive is prayer. It's relationship with God the Father. It's yearning for the things of his heart. And therefore, pray. It's so funny how I can have a conversation with someone so much about like this person they've been trying to reach and how excited they are. And one of the things we do in core, and we've, we've kind of beaten into people a little bit, is, hey, we talk about the people that we're trying to reach that God is calling us to, but we're also, like, we have to pray for them. We can't just be this savant of conversation that we can just kind of just manipulate and like, and, you know, it's not what it's about. It's, it, it says the, he's the Lord of the harvest, and it's his harvest-ready fields. It has nothing to do with us in terms of our own, like we are the reason why things happen. And, and that's why in, in CORE, I'm, we're really plugging it today, but in the outreach piece, we pray for people because we believe and we want to put our foot forward knowing that we're trusting that this is not our harvest, but that God is still including us in it, that he's, he's not just saving us, he's not just inviting us into this kingdom, but he's giving us a role and a job to contribute, which is just... So cool. And so what is Jesus' act of compassion? You know, he has this feeling. We know the feeling has action. What is his action? His action is empowering other people to engage with it. And so I think about this, like if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, right? You follow Jesus and you're really trying your best. This is a non-negotiable for those who follow Jesus. Because Matthew, 28 chapters long, we're nine chapters in, Jesus has done it all. He's been, he, got, he has all the points right now. And the second half, he's only passing the ball. <laughs> and you've got to shoot. And you can't just keep leaning on other people. You can't just keep leaning on, on, like, he is giving you the ball. And if you're not willing to shoot, like, you're not falling in the way of the rabbi, of Jesus. At the end of the day, he's going he's gonna to decide if it goes in or not, but you still have to be willing to shoot. So I want to close with this, and I think this is, I, I was like thinking about, oh man, how do we like, how do we, how do we really like let this live in us? 
And, and so I, I've compiled a few statements about, I think, this idea of compassion. And then I have some reflection questions. So if you're someone that likes, to, you're more introspective, you can write some of these down. But um, the first one is that compassion must be received before given to others. Meaning that you can be a nice person. You can see like the be kind signs everywhere, right? But at the end of the day, if you really want to be someone who can look at people who are building castles in the water, who are just continually the same, the same sin, the same pattern, the same brokenness, and you want to truly not have a heart of bitterness, of anger, of frustration, of apathy maybe, you just give up on them, right? They're never going to change. If you want to have a heart that truly is compassionate, that, that you feel this tangible yearning of deep com- sympathy and compassion, you have to feel that from Jesus for you first. You just can't do it. You can't conjure it up because it doesn't make any sense. It has to be received before it's given. That's why we offer the Lord's Supper communion every Sunday because we want to remember that we are the first recipients of compassion. So the questions from that is, do I understand, one, the depth of the heart of Jesus and two, his compassion for others, including myself? Do I really understand that? Do I really understand the fact that God of the universe who has humans who just rebel for hundreds of years, thousands of years, still continues to choose just so intensely, people who will honestly, in some ways, will never even choose him. The second one is that compassion actually requires a deep, secure foundation. This one's actually really, uh, really like misrealized. Mis, um, is that you know compassion? Like you just sitting there, like okay, I get it. I just need to be more compassionate. I'm like, oh, good luck. That is not that easy. And uh, one of the analogies I was thinking about was uh, if you've ever watched the show Ted Lasso great show. If you haven't seen it, like, I'm going to spoil it, but at this point, I think it's been out for a while, so I don't know. I'm sorry, but um, there's one scene in Ted Lasso, and Ted Lasso has won so many awards, and, and I think the reason why, and maybe we could talk about this after if, you, if you're a big fan, but is Ted Lasso is what people are yearning for. In a world of cynicism, in a world of division, in a world of disunity, he's this quirky, goofy, optimistic, like, savior to the people that he's around. And I'm no, by no means comparing him to Jesus, but it just makes you realize people hunger for that in their life. And the most powerful moment in that entire, entire series, which is what they're probably building in the last season, was this moment where Nate, who was his assistant, was just like, um, he was like a water boy and like really low self-esteem. And they just build him up this whole few seasons. And you see Nate like really just take off. But then all of a sudden pride comes in, right? And it's almost like, in this illustration, like Ted helped build him this castle, and he like thinks he's just the best now. And there's this scene at the end where, essentially, I'm oversimplifying, but Nate just like goes off on him. You know, he just says some of the meanest things that he probably could to Ted, and Ted had no reason for that to happen. And I was watching with Sarah, and I'm like, I'm a, you know, I, you know me, like, I, I don't take like, like if you go off on me, like you're gonna get it back, you know, even if you're right, like you just get, maybe you gotta give me a few days, I'll send you like a, I'm sorry, but. But you're gonna get it back. And so I'm watching and I'm like viscerally like just like shaking. And I was like, t- I couldn't, we couldn't even like finish the scene. I was like, Sarah, like I was like, this is so annoying. Like, who does he think he is? Like, this is Ted Lasso. You can't do that. You're the worst. And your hair is so gray. And so <laughs> I I was just like, I I literally like I just like I felt this like anger. I mean, I don't know if you felt that, and they just did such a good job. But but the reason what was so powerful about that entire scene, and I, I took the script from it. Uh, the quote, he says, all these mean things. And Ted says, if I didn't tell you how important you were to me enough, then I'm sorry about that. And I was so mad. I was like, dude, you should not have said that. That is not true. 
You were so good to him. He deserves a punch in the face. He deserves to be, I was like, I was like, I told him, I was like, I'd fire him right there. Like done. You can walk out. Like he's his boss. Like I'd fire him. That was so disrespectful. But the reason why Ted Lasso is able to do that is because he's a secure person. Like those type of words are not inflicting his core. And I think about, and we see throughout the show, Ted Lasso's a human. He has his own problems, right? But he is growing as he deals with those, right? And I think in our own lives, and we see Jesus, the reason why Jesus can do this, the reason why he can look at all these people who want nothing about him and his heart, they just want his stuff and his power, the reason why he can do that, he can feel that and act upon that compassion is because he's the most secure human being we've ever seen and ever met. He does not, he's not worried about what people think. He's not worried about how it'll affect his image or his money or his status or his fame. None of that. He doesn't have to worry about it. He's the most free person on earth. And we forget that if we want to be compassionate, oftentimes, in order to do it, we have to be secure because compassion is not a worldly trait. Like, you don't get rich being compassionate. You don't, you don't get, like, super big fame being compassionate. Most people that are famous probably stepped on a few necks to get there. Or were so consumed. Maybe their family. Maybe they worked like 80 hours a week and they just like grinded for three decades and like and they're like, yeah, they're famous, but like compassion is not gonna get you what the world wants. It's counterintuitive. So you have to have security. And and I just I think about that, and I just think about, you know, when you ask yourself internally, do I do I feel this compassion as Jesus does for people? If you don't, it's probably because you're not secure enough. You don't really trust that Jesus' way and what he's teaching and guiding us is truly what is worth it in the realm of compassion. The next one is compassion requires a focus and attention. And just quickly, you can read the last few chapters we've gone through in Matthew. Jesus is so locked in on people. He's never too busy. He's ne- he can be interrupted at any point, And he's always looking at people in the eye. Like I can imagine that he, if he looked at you for even 30 seconds, you would feel like you're the most important person in the world which is essentially what Ted and Nate, like Nate had said, like you made me feel like I was the most important and then you forgot about me or whatever. Jesus has focus and attention. If you're too busy, if you don't have margin, if, you, if you're evaluating your day based on how much you can achieve or whatever, you're, mar- you're, you're not gonna be compassionate. This is my problem. I, I'm like, I'm quantitating my day, right? And I'm like, oh, if I gotta go do that, like that's gonna lower my overall achievement for the day because I'm, I'm thinking it's more important, right? I'm, I'm, I'm using a worldly standard and I'm never going to be compassionate. Like, I'm never going to look at the person who has a flat tire and be like, yeah, I should help them. I'll be like, uh, that's not worth, like, it'll take me longer than AAA, and, like, I don't need to do it, you know? Like, that's how we work. Compassion has to be, in order to be a part of us, we have to have focus and attention. Compassion must include, a- include action. You know, we talked about that. It's not just a feeling, it's action. Otherwise, it's, it's just, it doesn't have any legs. And lastly, compassion is a foundational piece of Jesus' mission. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not be compassionate or, or, or have a heart for it. B.B. Warfield, he's one of the, uh, I don't know if you're a nerd and you like reading theological books, so I bet a bunch of you, but um, he, was a, he was a really solid, he still is, but theologian in the late 19th century. And uh, he got married, listen to this, he got married, and he was at the top of his academic career, and on their honeymoon, they traveled to Germany. They were hiking at the top of a mountain, and his wife goes struck by lightning, and she became an invalid, which is just like, you can't even make that up. And, and he, you know, he's a premier theologian, and he's just writing books, and people are just like obsessed with him, and his wife literally gets handicapped on their honeymoon in the mountains of Germany. And you know, she loved reading, and so uh, he would sit at her bedside, and he would read to her, and, 
And one day someone asked him, they said, hey, have you ever thought about taking your wife to like an institution, to like a home? And they said, then you could write bigger books and have a bigger ministry. But Dr. Warfield said, no way, my wife is my ministry and I will never leave her side. I'm going to love her and take care of her as long as God grants us life. He actually, one of his most important books he wrote is called The Person and Work of Christ. And there's a chapter in there called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And it talks all about Jesus' mission was a mission of compassion and mercy and that it was no doubt like a, a quintessential piece of who Jesus was. And I think about that. It's like, what a tangible explanation. This guy is like a premier writer, and he literally is just like, yeah, books are cool, but like my wife. And I think about that like every day. Like, am I like, yeah, all these tasks I got to do, or this person? What are you choosing? And the last one I want to close with is that compassion, and I, I just, I'm reiterating it. I really already said it. I'm kind of cheating, but must be rooted in the security of Jesus in our relationship. I read this passage often because I think it just, it just so messes with me. In, Luke, uh, in, in the later part of Luke, in verse 33, Jesus is on his way to be crucified. He's already been beaten and definitely made fun of. He's basically naked. And uh, it says in verse 33, they came to the place that is called the skull, and they crucified him there along with the criminals, one to his right and one to his left. Verse 34, here it says, But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. After that, they threw dice to divide his clothes. People stood watching. Leaders ridiculed him, making fun of him, mocking him. And I just, I think about that passage and I just think about like, you know, even at your worst moment, even at Jesus' worst moment, he is still having compassion on the people around him. I mean, can you imagine like someone punching you and you're like still feeling compassion for them? That is just next level. And, and this is who, this is like, this is just Jesus at his best, I feel like. I mean, this is just who he is. You cut him open and it's like, no matter what, he's there. So it's just, it's so, it's just, it's speechless. And then the last one is compassion is a mission. And it's a mission that starts with prayer. Have I prayed, actually, for God to not only use me, but to bring workers for this harvest? So I want to close with a kind of unique thing. I actually want us, if you're comfortable, um, you're welcome to pray by yourself, but if you want to pray in like a group of three or four, I actually want us to pray for this. I want us to pray for the Lord to, to not only motivate and activate our hearts for the harvest, to be a part of it, but uh, for other people to join us in that, not only here in Grandview, but in the world. And, uh, and so I'm going to give you guys like two or three minutes to do that. Like I said, if you want to pray alone, you totally can, no pressure, but I'll give you a few minutes and then I'll close us in prayer and we'll keep moving on.
Lord, we just thank you for not only your compassion that we see that's just honestly hard to fathom sometimes, but we also thank you that you, as broken as we are, that you choose to let us be a part of your mission and your story. And um, Lord, it's so cool and to just see it in Matthew so clearly, you to see all these amazing things that Jesus does and then in these next few verses that he just gives us this authority in his name to do these things in people's lives and to be, to be a part of them is just really just amazing. And so, Lord, before we even, I think about our, our grand opening in a few weeks and, and all the excitement that comes with that and maybe people that we get to be in, in, in just deeply involved in their life, I just pray that we wouldn't forget our roots, right? That we, we have received just the most lavish amount of your compassion in our lives. And so, um, Lord, we're just so thankful and we pray that you just help Help us to be the workers that can be a part of your harvest, and we hope that you, we just pray that you bring others to do that as well, um, because uh, we we just deeply want to see your harvest uh, in front of us. So we love you, and we pray all these things in your Son's name, Amen. All right, well, we're gonna uh, close with a time of reflection. We do this every Sunday, and so um, if you're at this point, and I I know I am, and I'm about to head back there to take some uh, take communion or the Lord's Supper. If, if you follow Jesus, this is just a reminder and a symbol of what he's done for you. And if you're like me, like I said in this passage, and you just feel like, wow, I'm like not even close to that level of compassion. This is why we take the Lord's Supper together, that it reminds us that we cannot do it on our own. We have a power much greater than us. And so um, the band's going to play a song, and so I just encourage you, you can go do that and partake in that. We also have people in the back that would love to pray for you. And you're also just, if you just, we're here to worship in uh, whatever way honors God. And so if you want to sit and just reflect and listen, you want to stand and sing and raise hands, you're welcome to do that. Um, But the band's going to lead us in uh, one last song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.